0: You're listening studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Paul Pope. Um, Paul has been a frequently requested guest from lots of folks, so I'm happy to have him on. Um, We've done a couple of panels at TCAF. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a couple of titles. Uh, Most uh, appropriately is um, uh, Battling Boy, which is out mid-October. Yeah, next week there we go. Oh, yeah, October 8th. This will probably be posted by then, so you can say, oh, yeah, it came out then. Um, <laughs> as well as Batman Year 100, uh, 100%, Heavy Liquid, uh, Pulp Hope, um, and One Trick Ripoff, and last but not least, the uh, massive series THB. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the much loved. Uh, a lot of people reflect on that with a lot of enjoyment. Yeah.
1: Which I can't can't wait to get back into I work on it periodically when I'm able to But, you know It can't come out until after the Battling Boy series is out So I've been cataloging it steadily for a long time (laughs) It's uh, a labor of love
0: It's it's actually what a lot of people are Oh, you're going to interview Paul Ask him about THP So basically it's in process
1: Yes yeah, it's, it's going to be five books, maybe six, if we collect all the secondary short stories. And um, I know for both Battling Boy and, to the, I guess the preface real quickly for people who might not know it, my publisher's first second. And so I've taken my, my basically the next 10 years of work. I, I've kind of shifted over, outside of small things, I still do short stories and covers and illustrations and things like that. But my main publisher now is for a second, so I've got, um, at the moment, there's uh, two Battling Boy books lined up, and following that, hopefully pretty quickly, will be uh, the five books in the THB series.
0: Excellent. So. Um, looking forward to it. Looking forward to finishing THB. Yes. <laughs> in, in the prep for this, I read it all, and I'm like, wait! <laughs> <laughs> um, now... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just um, Read a lot of your work um, Over the weekend uh, A lot, a lot, a lot of A lot of Paul Pope comics And so like I scrounged up A couple of pages of notes here And um, Today as I was uh, reading The Paul Pope book One of the things that stuck out to me Is kind of I guess an intro or, or a starting point um, it, Because music is a big part of you is you talked mm-hmm. a little bit about the uh, records you are seeing as a child, uh, specifically the design work of Hypnosis, and mm-hmm. it seems like an odd place to start from, but I kind of feel there's something there that's striking me um, as particular interest and kind of foundational to a lot of mm-hmm. what I see with you.
1: Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, you know, the Hypnosis is uh, Storm Thorgerson, and I, I'm blanking on his partner's name, but
0: I know uh, Peter Christofferson was a big part of it, too.
1: Okay, Peter, yeah, that's what sorry. Th- th- thank you for reminding me. Uh, you know, of course, did a lot of the seminal um, 70s albums with, from Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, um, I believe and Music. Um, you know, I mean, like, pretty much everybody who was, like, really doing avant-garde pop rock in the 70s and needed sort of a, um, a mystical or um, mysterious uh, visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked a lot with David Gilmore you know that. So I, I remember growing up, like really sort of sensing that there was uh, sort of like a, a hidden Rosetta Stone to this graphic work that's accompanying this, you know, music, which at the time was, you know, very exciting. And that this was, of course, you know, back in the days when we we couldn't just you know fast forward on our, you know, our um, our MP3 player or whatever. Like you actually listened to album sides, and it gave you a lot of time to look at the artwork that accompany the albums and uh, yeah. So I I had that and I had and also when you're a kid you don't think of it but it's like you know when you go back to your old elementary school if you've ever done this and you're you're shocked how small the chairs are Mm -hmm. you know that experience it's kind of like that with with LPs because proportionally you're three feet four feet tall and you're looking at these 12 by 12 um, you know square you know booklets or, or images they're, they're monumental in
0: that sense, you know. It's that kind of profound effect they can have. Yeah, yeah. So was, was there always kind of a visual interest for you growing up? Like in the Paul Pope book, you included a bunch of your child drawings uh, mm-hmm. or drawing as a child. And so I'm wondering about yourself as kind of creating images. Um, what do you feel kind of was when you really got into it and like, okay, this is what I want to do and kind of set that path to art school?
1: Well, I think well, I I sort of feel like a failed abstract expressionist or failed abstract artist. I I always found it very difficult to get out of the figure-ground relationship, you know, where when you're looking at an image, you know, the artists who can really pull off work which has no strong sense whatsoever of figure-ground I always admired them. And, you know, even, even the ones that I like a lot, like, let's say, de Kooning, um, Francis Bacon, you know, those sorts of artists. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd consider them necessarily abstract, but you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. There, there's, no, there's still a sense of subject matter. So the work isn't pure art in that sense, where it's pure mark-making or pure color, uh, pure composition, without, you know, sort of being tied to subject and stuff. And when I, um, a few years ago, I guess it was now about 10 years ago, but my grandmother surprised me by giving me this big stack of these drawings I did on, like, typing paper. Um, I'd, I'd wait in their office, and there were just, you know, reams of, uh, you know, you know dictation paper. And, I, and it's like, okay, here's a couple of pens, and just, you know, entertain yourself for the two or three hours. And, like, rediscovering that, I, I realized that that sort of naive mark-making is the, the thing that, I guess, as a professional cartoonist, professional illustrator, you sort of learn how to lose, you know, because you have to deliberately learn how to, like in my case, you know, draw exploded engines or insides of cars or guns or, you know, specific specific likenesses of actors or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And it's like you, you kind of eventually either bury or discard that naive approach to mark making. So I, I I got excited when I, when I was, uh, you know, sort of like re gifted these drawings I did as a kid because I realized I did them, so they're literally my drawings. They they aren't based on, you know, like great modern artists or great postmodern artists. They're actually like just the kid thinking on paper. And um, so that, yeah, so I did a whole series of drawings with the effort to like relearn how a four or five year old draws. And I got into Rudolf Arnheim, who's like a child psychologist and child art theorist and um i tried to apply some of his theory to like reclaiming child drawing technique as it were so mm-hmm.
0: it's it's it, it's a uh, you see i'm always curious about like seeing folks try and do child drawings and you kind of see where it works and see where it doesn't work mm-hmm. where someone's trying to make a child's drawing or mm-hmm. instead kind of let go of Maybe expectations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: if that works. No, I
1: doesn't. think also the, the the muscle memory was pretty interesting. Like to, to really get into it and do a series of fifteen or twenty drawings. You know, I, I would begin by literally tracing line for line the drawing. I noticed that the 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 natural hand movement was moving in a way that was, for lack of a better term, unprofessional. You know, mm-hmm. it was it, it was sort of counterintuitive in a way. The, the, you could tell that the, the, the hand gestures were moving in directions that are not the way that you eventually learn how to do it. When you become like a, you name anybody like a, you know, a Jack Kirby or somebody who actually gets a, a method down, it was sort of like anti method. And, and that was so liberating, especially at the time working on Batman. You know, I'm working on like one of the most iconic superhero, you know, brand characters. And it, it was like a, a really. Uh, kind of a palate cleansing epi- um, uh, endeavor to s- sort of like rediscover that at the same time as you know trying to do something that's as mainstream as it can possibly do. You now, know
0: what I mean? Yeah. No. Um, and I'm curious, in your early days of doing art, um, going to art school, what was your kind of original direct intention or kind of interest in what you're doing? Because I don't. To understand, you weren't immediately wanting to jump into comics.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I I, I guess I sort of thought I was thinking, you know, maybe academics. I, I was really into art history, um, archiving, uh, but I really liked studio arts. I liked I liked the process, and um, luckily, I kind of feel like like my like I started college in the late '80s, early '90s. That's sort of when I was doing my time there, and There wasn't really a very strong internet presence. There wasn't really an internet at the time, you know. This was even before modems. And, like, a a lot of the kids in industrial design or fashion had, um, you know, uh, CAD drawings. So they were working in vector, which is just a different mindset. So we were learning tons of hands-on stuff and actually in some ways had a lot of responsibility. You know, like, when I was doing lithography in the printmaking department, you know, if you dropped one of those litho stones, they're five or 600 pounds, you're either going to break your foot or knock it through the floor, or you're going to be responsible for, you know, $2,000 piece of stone. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like you had to really learn a craft where there was an element of peril, but you were getting analog results, which now we can easily reproduce with, like, you know, color filters and textures and gradients and all this type of stuff. But, you know, it's one reason I like what i would consider sort of like heroic crafts like screen printing or lithography or aquatint which is one thing i would like to get into when i have some more time
0: what's that the last one
1: aquatint where it's it's a combination of um uh metal plate pressing with um uh ink washes
0: okay i think renee french did some interesting stuff like that with like a copper plate
1: yeah i wouldn't be surprised I, I. um, I believe what I, what I have available would be zinc, but you can use a number of different alloys for it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I have kind of a whole, like, one thing I'm working on for the future edition of the art book is, uh, I don't want to say, like, a treatise or something, but I've been, in my spare time, quote-unquote, I've been reading about chemistry of paper and ink and trying to come up with some kind of a definitive, like, uh, kind of a cliff notes, like, you know, what is the difference between, like, a plant-based ink and a synthetic ink and a, you know, like a um, a natural hair brush and a synthetic brush, and, and the same with papers and then certain, uh, you know, climates and conditions and different kind of, like, like old-school things that just sort of have been lost over time. As more and more artists now, you know, like, working on Cintiq,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or you know, directly working, even some people I know, like, work on their iPads and there yeah. is no art document, you know, it's like, the document's digital, if if, if you could even call it a document.
0: It's, so, in,
1: it's,
0: that, it's in a, that sense, I'm...
1: It's oh, an. Oh, no, art. no, I was just, just going to say, like, in that sense, I'm, I'm a very modern, capital M modern artist. Where I'm concerned yeah. with, like, archiving and, you know, keeping a document.
0: Well, it is, I mean, there are, in some... F- fields like my girlfriend does uh, textile art so she does a lot of uh dyeing of fabric and it's really interesting how you kind of mm. get into that chemistry and how that creates um the work that you're making and how you know that that usage of different kind of synthetic and um natural products um the mm-hmm. really interacting and it's 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 interesting it's all beyond my kind of knowledge because i'm not good with the chemistry stuff but she's all up in that and
1: well, it's ancient too. If you think about it, like some of the stuff that people have used to dye fabrics, you know, whether it's turmeric or um, beets, mm-hmm. literally indigo. You know, indigo actually is a, is a thing in nature, and I, yeah, I find that stuff really fascinating. And, and you know, for me, I, I tend to work in sumi ink, which is a, a plant-based Japanese ink, which is water insoluble. Or sorry, water soluble. So it, it it will move if you keep if you go back and touch it up and stuff, and that has certain like, if I say in environmental concerns, it's not environmental in the kind of eco sense, but more like if you try to work in a climate that's too hot or too cold, you know, the ink either co- coagulates or it stays wet for too long, and you you're sort of in a, a situation where you might get like some sort of unwanted smudge. Yeah, that that stuff to me is like super interesting, you know.
0: Yeah, someone would tell me about how. Um some modern, not modern painters, but like modern, like illustrators, um, that know a lot of like fantasy painting and how, um, even like using the oil paints and then licking the brushes and how that can affect them.
2: Oh, um, wow, yeah. When
0: they're trying to get the opacity and just like how. So it was really fascinating just kind of thinking that degree of like how you're interacting with your materials is affecting you. Oh,
1: well, the, the big one in art school, because I, I was in, um, Uh, the painting department for a long time. I I studied a lot of printmaking, um, oil painting and, uh, figure drawing as well as, you know, like I, I was able to, you know, move around in different areas, which was great. But, uh, we used a lot of like, um, you know, turpentines and solvents and things. And like, there was a strict rule, like you, you, you this was back when people smoked like chain smokers, you know, like, like you can't smoke in the studio Not only is it dangerous because we're working with, like, flammable toxins, but there's a chance that you're going to have, you know, like a solvent on your fingers, which is going to get into your mouth because you're smoking. And, you know, there's, like, these interesting little sort of, like, fire hazard rules, you know, that, you know, outside of going to SCA, you know, some of the, like, I don't know if AGO is a school in Toronto, or I'm just trying to think of, like, the big schools, but, like, the sort of, like, old school technique stuff gets lost over time.
0: Now, you jumped into comics and quickly started publishing yourself. Um, were you pu- yeah. self-publishing while you were in art school, or was it when you were done? Um, kind of toward you did the end. Too low.
1: Kind, kind of toward the end because, you know, like once, once you're realizing like, okay, I've got a year or two of college left, and, you know, I have to move into something. You know, I, I over the summers, I would work like a, a lot of the kids I went to school with went up to the canneries in um, Alaska. And I considered that, but it looked like really, looked look like much, uh, for, for one thing, I like fish too much, because the one thing everyone told me is that I, I can never eat a piece of salmon again for the rest of my life. You know, it's like, well, this is like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to lose that. But, you know, at the same time, I, I did some um, carpentry, and um, I did a lot of, like, gardening stuff. I, I had a friend who had a, a little business, so I would, you know, do a lot of, pet, you know, like landscaping stuff. And then I, I finally got a job working in a print department at a uh, commercial printing press, where they would do everything from like, you know, like headshots for you know wannabe actors to like you know Chinese menus to like in Columbus, Ohio, where I went to school. There, there's a lot of print shops, which is great. And um, one of the big clothing companies, it's like J. Crew or American Apparel or one of those is there. So we did some of that like you know four color web press you know like look book catalog stuff Mm -hmm. and so that was really cool because it allowed me to have a pretty outside the fact that at the time you know the mid nineties it was a pretty cheap place to be living I mean my rent was like two hundred dollars a month and you know I lived on baguettes and coffee so it wasn't a big deal but working in the print shop you could like do you know do your bit in the day and then stick around in the after hours and actually burn your own films, clean up your negatives. You know, back back in these days, we're doing, like, you know, um, separations, you know, by hand for four-color and stuff, and so it was really fascinating, you know. I wasn't union, so I couldn't work on the big presses, mm-hmm. but I still worked on some of the smaller ones, and I, I still do, actually, when I do screen printing, the guys I work with, I, I work with them on on press.
0: And kind of work on your layers and deciding what your layers will be, and...
1: Yeah, mixing colors, um, all sorts of, you know, like, last-minute troubleshooting stuff. There's a lot of interesting things you can do with, like, adding enamels or... I mean, enamels are sort of toxic as well, but, you know, all sorts of different things about color saturation. Um, luckily, the machines now are all pretty safe. Like, the in terms of, like, the, the larger mechanical presses, you know, the ones that are, like, like million-dollar presses where you do, like, big prints and stuff, they're pretty hard to to hurt yourself on.
0: You're not doing uh massive hand pulling.
1: Yeah, no, you're not. I mean, in fact, even we have a big paper cutter, it's one of the places where I work and um there's like a three-step procedural to even put a piece of paper underneath the um underneath the uh the cutter and even there there's a um like this sort of like uh laser beam that you know like if if you if you pass it, it means that your finger's in it, and the press won't even fall, or the yeah. cutter won't even fall. So it doesn't, in that case, it don't have to be Union, you know, because it's like, <laughs> it so safe, it's like, I don't have to, you know. Now, you... I mean, one time back in the day, I remember this one guy got his finger crushed, and it, you know, this giant, you know, stone press that was, you know, printing up all these things, and um, it destroyed the press. Yeah you know, the million-dollar press, it was destroyed. His finger was crushed, there was blood everywhere, and the, the press was, like, literally the thing. Like, you imagine, like, a giant rolling pin. It literally came off. Oh. And it was just, like, just horrific, you know, so.
0: Jesus. <laughs> uh, lessons, kids, lessons. Yeah, uh, be lessons. Careful.
1: I mean, it's, it's funny we're talking about this. I haven't thought about this stuff for a long time. It's, it's bringing back lots of memories, being, you know, like, 21, 22, and, you know, the the whole... You know, half full of dreams and head full of hopes and all that that kind of thing, you know.
0: And then the eighty hour work weeks on comics. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Now, on uh Doctor Richardson or the battle of Doctor Richardson, I was mm-hmm. surprised rereading and realized that you had uh I guess editorial help from Robin Snyder. Mm-hmm. And i I'm did. Interested you know interested I know of him and even though mm-hmm. he lives like an hour away from where I'm at, I've never actually mm-hmm. met him. Um, I've never met him in person. We used to talk
1: on the phone a lot.
0: And for folks that don't know who he is, he's the only person that Steve Ditko works with now. He's yeah, the he's, he's involved Steve Ditko's, Ditko's editor and publisher. And
1: old friend. I've apparently known him for a long time.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm presuming they're they're pretty tight. I know they've I've got some stuff they did together. And I think Denny Loubrer published stuff they did together in the early 80s. Oh. oh, they
1: did. That's right. Coming I mean, yeah. Actually, some of the stuff is really good. It uh, kind of like crazy Steve Zicko. like not too far into like the objectivism stuff, but like just like did you ever see Crack Crackling Blazer, which is his like CB superhero?
0: Oh, I don't remember. You, like static?
1: It was something like yeah. You know, it, it, he, he had this, this strange fascination with a, an electricity character who travels over CB waves. And somehow he was like a trucker, or he's like living in the CB of a trucker's rig. And the (laughs) bad guy was the road that was chasing him. It was just insane, but it was great at the same time. It was like, you know, it's just crazy. It Uh, works.
0: I love Unfiltered Ditko. I think, like, it's some of my most favorite stuff. Even the stuff he's doing now, it's just so bizarre. But he's, like, doing this whole new language of comics that I don't Hmm. think people are quite caught up to yet. No, well, very... I mean,
1: I mean, obviously he's got like, you know, serious, you know, serious credentials. But I mean, I haven't looked at his stuff in a long time. I'd be interested to see. I know that they recently put out a book with a really improbable title, like thirteen and a half and a Half Stories by Fifteen O'clock" or something like right, something like that. And
0: that that sounds about right. What they've been doing is he's been doing these thirty-two issue comics, and they've been coming out maybe once every four months or six months, and he's got. Probably 16 of them from like the last five years.
1: Well, God bless him I, mean, I hope I'm not prolific when I'm his age. Yeah, he's, he's like 80 something years old, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's not a young, young buck. Um, <laughs> so, I guess, leading back to how did you kind of get connect with Robin? Because here's a guy in, you know, hmm. Washington State, close to Canada. Um, yeah. And in, and it seems interesting because there was so much around there as far as independent comics uh, in on the East Coast mm-hmm. at that time. And I see like you even got connected with Steve asset pretty early, I think. Yeah, he
1: did, He was yeah, he was great. He was one of the first guys I met in the business. I mean, I think I think the fact is, you know, the comics is sort of a lonely profession. So I think if if somebody reaches out to you, you you sort of want to talk to him because. You know, 99%, I mean, outside of conventions and book signings and stuff, you know, the kind of discussion we're having, although you and I have known each other for a while.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like, m- most people, like, like where I live here, like, most people know me as Paul. Like, they know I have some sort of an artistic job, but they don't, like, know anything about comic books. And I don't really want to talk about it, you know what I mean? So, in my case, like, I I somehow got the idea to send a fan letter to Alex Toth, and, and a couple months later he wrote me back and then that was super exciting I was about 18 or 19 and gradually through his network of sort of like you know letter writing friends and stuff I, I gradually got to you know I haven't met Ditko in person but I was uh, corresponding with him for a while with Pat Boyette uh, with Eisner and um, and Robin was sort of like the conduit for that group of like the, that, that uh, generation so to speak
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I,
1: I believe he's like 10 or 20 years younger than all those guys so he had a little more energy and stamina and kind of a, a business plan in a sense so he was publishing a newsletter and um, I was just subscribed to that and once in a while I would do something And actually one of the first things I did I had not thought about this in a long time but one of the first things I did in comics was um, a script that Robert Kaniger wrote and he's like one of the old Silver Age dudes who worked on like you know uh, Sergeant Rock and Metal Men and uh, right. the Flash, and so that was kind of neat. He was uh, you know sort of like um I guess it was like an internship if you want to think of it that way, right? It's like comics
0: internships. And where w- was that published in in Snyder's comics? Yeah, it was
1: Snyder? in, in his um yeah I, I, I know his his thing now is called the comics. Or, yeah, I, I last time I was looking at it was, but I forget what he called it at the time. It's been a, uh, I hate to say this because I'm only 43. I don't think I don't consider myself an old man, but I mean it's literally been like 20 something years since I've, I've looked at this stuff. But you know it's journeyman work. It was like you know I was I must have been 20 21 years old, still kind of figuring out what I was hoping to do. I was you know, not even really not even sure if I wanted to really make comics for a living yet.
0: I was thinking about something that, uh, I think it's Dave saying that says, like, you got to go through your thousand pages and then you kind of know what you're doing with your comics. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, your thoughts on that, um, because like, like I mentioned, like I was kind of surprised by the prolificness, like, like, oh, there's another book and it kind of making the stack and it's going higher and higher. And do you feel like yourself, um, learning the trade, learning the craft, um, can you identify a point where you're kind of like you know you're at that at that kind of capability you want to be at that you're aiming towards
1: honestly i think i i really picked up a brush in earnest around 1991 92 maybe no m- like no motor skill what's it's a very di- difficult tool to use it's still a difficult tool to use to be honest but i think that, so if you went from 91 through I think it was probably the late 90s it was, it was probably about the time I moved to New York it would have been probably around 1999 I felt like I was actually good at what I was I was brushing or using a brush before this but when it really felt like I was actually doing what I was intending to do with it I think it probably took eight years like good enough to be the be quote-unquote professional within three years yeah to really get to a point where it's like, okay, I meant to do that, then you know, like, oh, I, I just discovered something I didn't realize this thing could do, and you and know, I, knew- I think that, yeah, that was that was that, that eight years I think it before it, it really felt like I knew what I was doing with it.
0: And that's interesting because I was looking at your work and I was thinking, like, I I saw like a big change at some point, and it's probably around that point um, where your work. I felt it got a lot more... I could see you were kind of more comfortable in what you were doing, mm-hmm. if that mm-hmm. makes sense, and like mm-hmm. trying more chances. Like it was seeing mm-hmm. where you're kind of incorporating a lot of more of the the kind of Stedman-esque splatter um, yeah. effects to your work. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of corroborate right? Or
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, like, you know, because in the mid-90s I was working for a Japanese publisher, and um, they they were always like my editorial team were telling me, don't worry if it looks good, it doesn't matter. We need you to produce, you know. It was like an ungodly number of pages. At some point, it was like eighty pages a month, but comfortably it was around thirty five to forty. Because mm-hmm. for the most time, I was in a magazine which no longer exists called um, Afternoon which came out once a month. It wasn't a weekly. I, and Later, I moved to one called Morning, which is still in print uh, from Kodamsha. And it comes out, like, every Monday morning. And, you know, it's more of a mainstream, like, network television programming type thing. So I, I was able to work for a couple of years with sort of, like, the editorial guidance, you know, uh, sort of um, assuring me it, it didn't have to be particularly good work. It just had to be good enough that it would be passable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I th- I think probably psychologically that was a pretty helpful like amnesty if you will you know what I mean so
0: <laughs> it kind of gave you a chance to kind of push as as a workman I guess mm-hmm. as 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 a trade in a way no. Yeah, and I think also, you know, like, what,
1: what if you do something long enough, you eventually get to the point where it's like, okay, I kind of did the day's work, but I still have another hour or two in me or so. I'm just going to improv a little bit and see what happens, you know, and certainly plenty of times you tear up a page or you redraw something or you do paste up or, you know, text edit or whatever, whatever people do now with Photoshop, but edit, delete, you know what I mean? You, you can always, if, if, if you feel like it doesn't matter if you fuck up because you can always go back and, at the very worst, redraw it, which is, you know, for a panel that might take, unless you're looking at some ridiculous panel with like, you know, Ben-Hur chariot races and, you know, that kind of thing, it doesn't take that long to redraw something, if you really have to. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, like, one of the benefits of, like, that like mid-to-late-90s Japanese period.
0: You you said um, something in one of the THBs about having to kind of re-understand comics in a way through reading manga because you weren't instinctually Mm -hmm. a manga reader and I'm interested about that like the kind of new lessons from manga that kind of imprinted your comics.
1: I think for me like growing up reading western comics and and, in this I would even Mm -hmm. include European stuff because you know I read I I grew up reading a lot of the you know, Mobius and Jean, Jean uh, uh, and these different European artists. You know, um, Libretto and different guys. We have sort of a um, an illustrative approach to storytelling, whereas manga has more of a visceral thing. Like this isn't true in every case, but it's this was sort of my training in Japan, and sort of my takeaway from it is that the point is you're you're trying to get the the reader to identify sort of emotionally and immediately with the character in the story as opposed to reading the story, you know, so like if if Jack Kirby were Japanese and he was doing the origin of the Fantastic Four he would identify like, okay, this is sort of a, uh, a a monster story set in a science fiction you know, sort of um, Cold War setting, right? So he would want you to, he would, he would making manga in order to make you feel what it feels like to be the thing be the thing not just to like see the thing like turn into a, the creature and then knock the wall down or something you know and I think that's one reason you can get away with 300 page you know stories mm-hmm. for manga that goes on on and on forever mm-hmm. you know what I mean so yeah. that's, that's one thing I've tried to apply with Battling Boy in fact
0: so you're trying to take more of kind of a Manga-esque approach.
1: Yeah, like like let it feel like Jack Kirby, but, you know, but but let it let it work like manga. That's that was sort of my 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 big idea, and partly that came out of the frustration of working on Batman, where just because they wanted to get out within this was around the time the first Batman film was coming out, they were saying like okay, like I I had like a fifth issue for Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman Year One Hundred was the book, and uh, it's four issues, two hundred something pages. And there was a fifth issue, which was basically just all of the extra fight scene sequences. I had this big thing planned for the end, that was this giant, like fifty car pileup, which I just didn't have time to draw. And I was frustrated by that. So when I got a chance to, you know, create something new for for a second, the, the battling boy, I was like, you know what? I'm I'm gonna finally do something like that, where it's like just a, a massive superhero battle that goes on and on and on forever in the same way like manga, like with Akira, you know, it's like when neo Tokyo's destroyed, it just goes on and on and on forever, you know, and there's I something remember, super o- overwhelming about that, which is really interesting.
0: I remember you were telling me you were doing like 50-page fight scenes, Yeah. and just, uh, there's something interesting about just, you just kind of got to lose yourself and just... I wonder, like, when you plan out a 50-page fight scene, you just, like, go for it and just... Or do you kind of plan it out pretty strategically?
1: Pretty, It's it's pretty planned out. I mean, there's a little bit of... I have this joke with my editor, Mark Siegel, about this because it's almost like, um, you know, like, I mean, you and I talk about music a lot. It's like, you know, I really love Miles Davis and a lot of the sort of intuitive players who are also composers, and I like... This, this notion we have of, like, jazz improv within an orchestral uh, structure. So, you know, like, with, with Battling Boy, and now with THB as well, the scripts are pretty tight. I don't know necessarily every single page what all the dialogue's going to be. You know, I'm not this sort of a writer. But at the same time, I'm working directly from thumbnails, where, you know, by the time I sit down to do the page, I know exactly pretty much what the dialogue's going to be and you know what sort of the important beats are going to be but because the intention is to make this like viscerally overwhelming superhero reading experience in a way it, if the fight scene wants to be 70 pages and not 50 if it feels like that's going to make it a better you know a better a, a better composition then there's the freedom to do that mm-hmm. and I think that's cool because like, uh, like if you kind of come from comics you're thinking like okay like the model is we've got 22 pages of story, and it's a serialized monthly. And then we've got like eight pages of you know advertisements or whatever, and and one's a splash page and blah blah blah. And now with I know with web comics there's a different structure, but in our case it's thinking more like in a, a musical format where it's like okay this is going to be like the, the one album side, like this one battle is just going to be like you know like a, a the equivalent of like a fifteen-minute, you know, dynamic piece of music, as opposed yeah. to like a pop song. I, I know some people hate if I make these analogies, but <laughs> I, I think they're useful. You know, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, for, for me, it's useful at least because
0: you know, music it, it's is kind of bringing
1: bringing new things into comics.
0: Well, it's funny because music is also an odd thing that people process in different ways, and so for for mm-hmm. us to be able to talk about, say, a fifteen-minute, you know. Piece that goes in the direction that we can be talking about Faust and kind of know what we're talking about, and other people are going kind to of be like, it's just. Uh, yeah, it sounds like Wankery or
1: something. Yeah. Two hipsters on a podcast.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm not. Although, I don't studios. know about you, but I'm I'm too old to be a hipster, you know? I've never had an ironic
0: mustache. I can't grow a mustache, so I think we're safe there. Um, <laughs> although, I, I could probably get accused for my music taste, so I'll leave. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, I feel like we kind of took you away from what you're thinking about, um, but I have something I kind of want to toss in, because it's hard, so much work, it's hard for me to cover, like, particular books, like, we're not doing, like, the old school Comics Journal type interview, um, so this one quote kind of, for me, covers a lot of what you talk about, and, uh, and I forget which book I got it from, I think it's from a THB, one of the big specials, is, uh, and, uh, and I'm cutting it short here, um, sci-fi is literary vehicle through which we can express our anxieties about the world. And mm-hmm. and I guess with that quote in mind, how does Battling Boy kind of express those anxieties? Because it's, it's very different it, from your other work.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I... I... I, you know I that's a good question. I, I I have two thoughts about it. One is sort of uh, an initial response to some of the early reviews. Like they've mainly been positive, but some people have mentioned that it seems like pretty obvious. Like what's what this is like? You know, the bad guy's name is Adisto. He's the bad guy, and then this other guy, Haggard West. You know, it's like he's a tired Western superhero architect. It's like th- this there is a science fiction element to Battling Boy but it functions more in like a classic mythic I mean it's kind of a mashup there, there's a lot of like silver and golden age superhero stuff in there so it it's different from a lot of the the work I've done in the past mm. but one thing and this isn't like a big spoiler but one thing that starts to come out as the story progresses is that Battling Boy is like a, a naive kid who comes from a technologically superior race, or uh, of, of like demigods. Yeah. And and one reason, like the the world of Battling Boy is kind of set in like a World War II, like sort of pre Cold War era Western setting, and like there there aren't internet, there, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, there's you know nothing like that. There's no nuclear weapons, and that's deliberate because when Battling Boy arrives, he comes as a uh, the kind of people we are, like a contemporary who does have the equivalent. Like his map is the equivalent of a laptop or um, an iPad, and he has he has like he has this um, two-way wrist radio thing. He can talk to his dad, and they've never seen that in this other world. So he seems like a god to them, but he is a science fiction, he's a kid from a science fiction world who doesn't know how things work, and so when he starts to have this ongoing relationship with the the, the daughter of this slain superhero, it's kind of like a Batman, Iron Man type, she's a, like a true science hero where she, she is always like correcting him on like scientific terms, and she actually can build stuff and take things apart and put them back together, and he can't. He just mm-hmm. arrives with all this, like, amazing shit that he doesn't really know how it works. But it's but to them, it looks like magic. So that's kind of a different take on science fiction, but that's, I would say, the science fiction spin on it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of sleight of hand in Battling Boy, where it's yeah. like I'm throwing in a, a lot of everything from Star Wars to, to Nibelungen to, you know, um, Jodorowsky to, you know... Jack Kirby
0: One of the things I was thinking about With it is um, uh, Something that I've noticed In other work of yours Is kind of the importance Of Greek myth And mm-hmm. kind of playing With these archetypes And I'm mm-hmm. just curious About how that fits in
1: Well um, It's kind of cool as, as the story continues You get to see more Of Battling Boy's family Like he comes from A, a sort of Sort of a paganistic realm where there's, like, there are, like, you know, in all the the myths, you've got, like, a Hercules, and you've got Thor, and you've got Indra, and all these different, you know, archetypical heroes and heroines, and I've tried to create this notion that all of those different mythic traditions come from, like, one place. I mean, this is pretty standard. I mean, this isn't, like, every single mythological story, I suppose, but I'm giving it, like, a, a very Hopefully, like, cool and, like, deeply understood Kind of a superhero science fiction veneer But, um, he's, like, he's deliberately kind of a Nordic You know, like, Northern European-looking kid And, um, you know, we we went through some different uh, In the early version, he was sort of a Native American equivalent But I I deliberately wanted him to be, like, a Caucasian You know, just, just sort of, like, I'm not trying to make this overly politically correct or like try to take it too far out of like most of the myths that people know whether it's like the you know the Nordic myths or you know the Greek myths, Mediterranean but you see what I'm saying
0: mm-hmm. Do you kind of feel like if you delve into kind of First Nations mythology it could be um you could not portray it properly, maybe in a way.
1: Well, there's, I mean, there, there's some interesting stuff that starts to come out. Like in, in the first Battling Boy book, you're introduced to some of his cousins, and some of them, like they're they're, like some of them look like like sort of like fish boys or something, and some of them look like like one one kid's referred to as a name that's sort of like, um, it sounds like it might be an Aztec equivalent for Hercules or something, so he does have other siblings and other cousins that do start to come into the story, so I'm, I'm trying to do something that is um, hopefully showing a, like, a root connection, you know, like this kind of Joseph Campbell notion of like the, the hero's journey and how there, there are certain sort of like implied stories or implied rites of passage that Regardless of your technology or your your culture or even your time period, there is sort of something where, like you know, everyone has a mom and a dad. You know, I mean, I guess we're sort of changing that if we if we can clone people. But you you see what I'm saying? It's like yeah. there's a there's everyone is an adolescent. Yeah, there's a lineage. Everyone is an adolescent. Everyone has everyone gets beat up. Every everybody goes through puberty and all these types of things. So I'm trying to find a way to tell that story, but do it in a way that it's not like you know Pinocchio or something that's like 70 years old and looks like old to kids
0: Mm -hmm. um kids thinking about you know battling boy and THB there's there's certain interest in like you know adolescence as as characters for you Mm hmm. um is that? Do you notice that yourself? Like, kind of.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if you, I don't know about you, but if if I look back on my life, that feels like such a rich time of. It's almost like you're awakening out of dreaming. When you're a kid, you like you, you you think Santa Claus is real. You know, I thought David Bowie was really from Mars.
0: I took him at face value. He probably is. <laughs> Let's just just go with. <laughs> He's from the the North Pole of Mars.
1: You know, but as, as you get older, you sort of become shocked into the banality of the material world where you, you do know your mom and dad are going to die, you're going to die, your dog's going to die, you know, the, the, the milk's going to get rotten if you leave it in the fridge too long, you know, all these sorts of things. And it's like, when you're a kid, you you have no consciousness of this. You don't think about bills. You don't think about the prom. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that's like in the case of Battling Boy, we, we talk about the turning. It's like, that's that's what's happening. Is He's going out of that sort of Elysian um, realm where all he has to think about is being with his cousins and food and sleep and his, his pet tiger and all this type of stuff and going into a world where there really is pain and suffering and loss. And, you know, like he doesn't know anything about that. And... In a way, like his his father, who's this big kind of like war god character. He's sort of like um, Simba in The Lion King, where he's it's just time to kick him out of the cave, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, the stories, and you know, he, you know, I love a lot of the classic, you know, mythology, and mm-hmm. so I'm trying to find a way to use, like, in a very respectful way, like this classic thing, but not it, not. To the degree where I know some guys who Try to use Joseph Campbell Like it's almost like You you think about The hero with a thousand faces Or one of these Like texts of his Like If if you look at it In sort of a cynical way It can look like Some sort of a Formulaic blueprint For how to tell a story Of the Luke Skywalkers Or the Spider-Mans Or like all You know these sort of like Classic origin tales
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know Because I think there's hopefully something a little darker behind Battling Boy that kids can handle and adults can identify with because everybody who's an adult was was at one point a kid.
0: We all have our 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 youthful indiscretions and experiences to to pull from. Yeah. Looking like I said, reading a lot of the work, um I was thinking about something about politics came up for me. And mm-hmm. um, and, and I was thinking, there's something linking a lot of these books. And then one of the things, you have a quote, freedom is slavery. And I, I thought that was a pretty bold statement to make. And so I'm curious. Well, that's, that's George Orwell. That's not mine. I'm just quoting Orwell. But to use it in your work is, mm-hmm. I, I think, um, and I know it's in the Batman, um, in the one where it takes place in Germany in 38, um, Mm -hmm. you talk about a libertarian writer, um, oh, yeah, yeah, and a lot of, like, in THB, the villain of the story, kind of, is the government, and, and so I'm interested Mm -hmm. in kind of how these things kind of feed in, or, or where that's coming from, from your own particular interest, um, well, I think
1: I'm I'm interested in in
0: I am interested in freedom and sort of a in the sense where
1: like you you can choose to be the person that you would like to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you know, like we live in such a, 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 you know, like you know the government shut down in the states, and it's like you know, like oh, you're a right winger, you're a left winger, you're a commie, you're a liberal, you're a tea guy, and like that stuff to me is so. It, it like lacks so much nuance and so much understanding of like why people act and why people do things. But I know for me personally, one one thing that does you know uh, this is one reason I'm interested in the adolescent hero characters is because like where I grew up, you know, it's close to my family. But it was I was I grew up in a small town, and it was real easy to get identified as like oh that that kid that kid's a, a wuss. That kid doesn't. That kid can't play sports. That kid's weird because he's reading comic books. That girl. That that guy can't get a girlfriend. You know that guy's strange. You know. Then like eventually, like, I I kind of got into like goth and punk because that was a way to sort of like have people leave you alone because they thought you were slightly unhinged or something. But then again, there was like another set of rules that you had to identify with. And I mean, the truth is, I was like at school. I was friends with like. You know, like the kids who like played, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, and they were nerds and they read. You know, they'd watch Star Trek and they read the Robert Heinlein and Dune, and they would talk about it for hours. And, but they got beat up. And then, then there was the, the punk kids who were the rebels, and I was friends with those guys as well. And you know, you do dangerous shit and vandalize, and your hair looks funny. And you know, for me, I, I feel like in in my work, I I still remember the feeling of. Being kind of stuck in that world where it's like you just kind of like being pressed upon from every angle to like conform and be a certain way. And that's why I always love Jack Kirby and, and Fourth World because that character Scott Free for me is so cool because he has a great line where he says, Let me be Scott Free and be myself or find myself. Right? And I, I saw like a, a kind of like a mythic answer to the existential problem of. Like living, you know, a, a world where you're where you're labeled, you know, whether it's ethnic or you're you don't have enough money or you know whatever it might be, and you know I, I like I like to create those kind of characters because I like to think about that, like how do you how do you change yourself and like kind of overcome all the shit that's bringing you down, you know, and um in in the case of the Batman story, I mean this is going back like almost twenty years, like thinking about it, but mm-hmm. I. I I thought it would be interesting to try to, you know, basically send a Roman Roman candle into mainstream comics and do something with, like, a political, you know, angle to it that wasn't, you know, Denny O'Neill saying, you know, Batman can't have a gun because, you know, I'm I'm against guns or what, you know, just that that was like, at the time it seemed like that was sort of the rule, like, you know what I mean? Like, you, you couldn't do anything with Batman that wasn't going to be under the sort of like the, the, the edict of whatever the edit, the editor of the Batman books wanted.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in that sense, it was kind of punk rock. Cause it's like, okay, I'm going to throw out this super obscure Austrian economist. Nobody knows who, the, who this guy is. But I found this interesting bit of history where the Nazis stole all of his kind of anti-Nazi writings, which eventually wound up under Soviet control. And it's like there was this finding around 1997 I thought it was, it was kind of like this Indiana Jones thing. with was like, wow, well, this is kind of cool. Like, all these lost writings actually did wind up somewhere.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, in, uh, I know Jeff uh, Smith did something similar with the Tesla Diaries or the Tesla Notebooks, which did go, like, it's a true story. You know, like, this guy who was sort of this, you know, this, like, lost scientist who might have potentially done something so much bigger if he could have gotten out of you know, the um, the hairline triggers of all of the, the corporate and government people against him. You know, and so I, I know Rassel was, was in part uh, inspired by that, so you know, I, th- I think or, you know, the, the Lost Ark of the Covenant so maybe something similar as well, where like all these kind of like mythic lost like texts. You know what I mean? So th- that that was kind of the inspiration.
0: Just kind of trying to see if I can verbalize this right just how things can be taken away i guess well i
1: think you know like th- th- like this whole um uh, f- forgive me if this sounds really horrible but like this you know this kind of jeffersonian notion of like there are two types of freedom there's the positive freedom and a negative freedom and the negative freedom is the freedom in yourself to do or be anything you want. Mm-hmm. And of course, this ends at the tip of your nose. You can't go kill someone and rob them. But more like, if, if you say, I want to be a cartoonist, I want to be a musician, I want to be a cook, I want to be a mom, and whatever it might be, you should be able to be that without being like you know encroached upon. Whereas the positive freedoms are the ones where it's like, in order for me to have this Someone else has to do something for me, whether they want to or not. So, in terms of like libertarianism, that's kind of my basic understanding. It's just sort of like the freedom to exit a situation where you you, you don't feel like you're either, you know, like free to voluntarily engage in whatever whatever it is you're doing, or you feel like you're compelled to stay there. You know what I mean? So. Just to break down because people ask me about politics it's a lot. And there's one or two interviews I did like in the early '90s that are embarrassing, but they're like you know 25 years ago, 20 years ago, and obviously everybody you know changes their opinions over time. So I don't necessarily hold by everything that's been you know reprinted that I've said, but at the same time I do have sort of a, a libertarian uh, bent. You know I, I don't think that's going to change.
0: I do, uh, it's for me it's interesting because like being Canadian like you've lived in Toronto so you kind of mm-hmm. our our politics are very different like our political language so I'm always interested of of others and how they engage in politics because like we don't have so much of this dichotomy of left and right like, mm-hmm. there's spectrums mm-hmm. and there's wants and needs. Um, yeah, and you you so, build coalitions in a in a parliamentary system. In, in some ways, that's a better system. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, watching America right now, I'm. I'm pretty happy having a parliamentary system. If this was uh, Canada, yeah,
1: I would imagine
0: you would. Yeah, <laughs>
1: I'm kind this... of yearning for it myself, to be honest.
0: <laughs> if this was Canada, there'd just be an election in four weeks. Like, oh, no one can work. You guys are gonna have an election. We yeah. get to vote on you. Um, that's my. My my spiel. Um. Now you're doing a couple events uh, coming up on the 15th. You're going to be in Toronto at the Beguiling?
1: Yep, yep. Yeah. Um. I believe it's at Revival, which is sort of like, I don't quite know what the relationship is, but it, it's a place where actually we did something. We did a thing with Brandon Graham and uh. Sam oh, Hedy. at
0: the at the bar.
1: Yeah, kind of like a bar performance space. Mm-hmm. In Yorkville. So I I don't have the details offhand, but I know. I believe believe uh, Chris uh, Butcher and I are going to do a Q and A. And I, lo- you know, I, I love Toronto. I've lived in Toronto. I love to go back and visit. I have a lot of friends up there, so I, you know, I'm always happy to go back. And, and in, in fact, in our case, for the Battling Boy debut, I, I deliberately requested to do something there because I wanted to make sure within like the first week of the book's launch we could do something because I, I want to, you know, remain kind of like, uh, like, uh, you know moral support for Toronto in whatever sense that means, you know? Like a cartoonist who is from Toronto.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a it's a really unique, interesting community they have there. It's, and I've got uh, lots of love for the Beguiling. Um, mm-hmm. And for folks that want to check out what Paul's original art looks like, you can just go to the Beguiling's website and purchase it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you're we actually have um,
1: well, them. That, w- that would be nice if anybody wants to buy art. There's always that. But yeah, we're doing some gallery shows.
0: And I was also going to ask what you're doing at the Society of Illustrators. You're doing something, right?
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. The Society of Illustrators is like this old school, like primarily 19th, 20th century illustration house. Um, 63rd in Lexington, amazing collection. Everything from Frank Frazetta to NC Wyatt to Norman Rockwell to Ralph Steadman to, you know, whoever and they recently joined up with um CDLDF the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund of First Amendment Rights um, organization and also uh, mocha which is the, the Big Independent Show here in New York the Museum of Comic Book uh and Cartooning Art mm-hmm. so they've sort of joined forces and um they want to start doing more events comic book related as opposed to you know, if, if you're in the NCYS, I mean, that guy, you know, that, that's a, a kind of rarefied, and also it's very old. Not to say it's not great, but it's old, you know, so they're trying to do stuff more contemporary.
0: Well, illustration these days is way more linked to cartooning than yeah. past. Yeah. Like, most big illustrators are also cartoonists, it seems like. Yeah, it's true. What, what's cool, too,
1: about, like, deliberately kind of aiming Battling Boy for a young adult audience, or what they call middle-grade readers. That's like the, the industry term I'm learning, um, you know, like um, you know fifth grade and up, this kind of thing. It's Unlocked, a very interesting new area for comics, at least for me, and for this series, and that, that is getting into school libraries and public libraries. And uh the society is bringing in unbelievably a thousand school tours oh, in wow. the three months the show's going to be up and it's going the show's deliberately like it's going to be cool for fellow artists and you know friends of ours and stuff who want to come and just look at drawings and that kind of thing but the show is designed to introduce young people to the entire world of comics and cartooning, and so we have this um the plan is right now to have a, sort of a showcase set up showing the lineage that led to Battling Boy, like the DNA behind Battling Boy, so you'll see images from Fantasia, you'll see Jack Kirby's comics, you'll see Mobius you know, like you'll see um um, well, uh, C. Wyatt for example, like, you know, different artists who have influenced something contemporary
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, that's kind of cool because you know, that, that, that's going to introduce something that might seem sort of out there to like a 10 or 12 year old but like a kid who might like you know anime but they don't quite understand like the connection to like older stories
0: that that excites me because for i i love the influence the discussion of influences and also how um in comics there's kind of a narrative tradition and mapping that narrative yeah. tradition and going okay who who and I think we talked about this a bunch when it mm-hmm. you, you and Sam and brandon um about how we get these connections and who we come from and so for me to see mm-hmm. that kind of directly um, being talked about it's pretty great so.
1: and i I think mean you know, like a lot of, a lot, I've met a lot of like other cartoonists over the years who are kind of quiet about their influences, but I feel like the only way to really be strong about it is to be completely open, is to be like, you know what, I love Jack Kirby. There's a ton of Jack Kirby in Battling Boy, a ton of Mobius, ton of Miyazaki, ton of, you know, Yodorowsky. like, just to really name-check, like, the ones you came from. And in the sciences, people do this all the time, like, outside of, you know, pure plagiarism, you know, a scientist builds upon someone else's discoveries, and if they're wrong then you throw them out and you start over again, you know, that kind of thing, I've, I've always found that a very generous and, you know, productive way to sort of move forward and make something new
0: I was uh, talking with uh, with Frank Santoro about comics and art, one of the things we were talking about is, it's interesting for folks to kind of it's okay to embrace those influences and kind of work through them, like take it, put it into your work draw it in there and work through it and mm-hmm. see what comes out at the other end um yeah, don't yeah it. i agree
1: with that i got that from um there's a, an older artist named steve Roode, who i think you and i both really respect and admire a lot um in fact i had dinner with him in toronto this is going years years and years ago we went back and had a uh, uh like a signing together and then we had dinner and he had these amazing sketchbooks where he would literally copy whether it's, you know, his, his his big hero is Andrew Loomis, but it could be anybody from, you know, Montgomery Flagg to Jack Kirby to Alex Tote. And he would literally trace the drawings or study them and, you know, but the, but the drawings were perfect. They're amazing. And I I asked him, like, I was astounded by this. And he, I'm like, what are you going to do with these? He's like, nothing. I'm just, these are my personal notebooks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he told me he's like, you know, just if if there's something you like about an Alex Toth drawing, just copy it. Yeah. And figure it out. Yeah. I thought that was really cool.
0: Are you still sketchbooking?
1: Yeah. I am, although right now it's more about thumbnailing Battling Boy Two and kind of keeping on top of that. I do um the random book cover, random illustration thing for magazines. So um, I've been doing a series of drawings of plants and flowers, which eventually I'm going to do something with. I don't I don't quite know where it's going yet, but it's like we were talking earlier about the kid art series. Yeah. There's enough time in the week where I can do. A, I'm sure if, if my editor mark hears this, he's going to <laughs> get on his chair and tie the tie the uh, noose up. But there's a, there's a little bit of time in the week to like. Work on something personal So right now I'm I'm doing studies Of plants
0: You gotta You gotta have Your warm up
1: Right Yeah Exactly Exactly It's
0: uh You can't I mean I've done
1: so much Pit Up Girl stuff And so much like Rock I mean I still love doing Like rock tour posters And stuff but That's kind of like Tim Burton doing another Goofy You know Edward Scissors hands Movie You know it's like You can't just do The same thing forever Unless you're just Doing shtick Yeah You know so I, I like to changing my, like, sort of, like, part-time Don Juan, where I'm able to, like, have other graphic interests outside of, you know, the main job.
0: And is there an expected, proposed, um, ideal date for book of Battling Boy, or is it too far to... I think, I,
1: I think it's a little too far, although the goal right now is to get a page a day done. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely into book two. The script is finished. Every Thursday, we meet up in the offices and drop off art. So it's kind of like a mini ten meeting in that sense. And, you know, every week I'm expected to deliver. And when we're on the road, that's when I thumbnail.
0: Yeah. Are you doing the... seems to be working. Are you doing the Dave Sim thing where you're putting them up all on the wall just to kind of... I, I
1: will, I, I, I've got some stuff on the wall, but, um, I mean, because I'm not working from home, it used to be like just wake up, you know, you're, you're in your underwear, make some coffee, walk into the room and start drawing. Now it's a little more like, I don't want to say a 9 to 5 job, it's more like a 12 to 9 job. Mm-hmm. And then I do a lot of, like, like tonight I'll do a second shift, at a small workspace at home. I'll do, like, a second shift until late and then get up and come back over here and work. I think the, the the thing that changed is um, having just needing to be online, you know, just for all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the reason I got this like little second unit space is just to have like a a bulwark against the internet, just so I
0: can think, you know. The kind of uh, sensory deprivation tank.
1: Yeah, it really is like that. Yeah, I just I'll, I just listen to music here and lock the door and. You know, if I feel like reading, I've got a few books here, and, you know, I have a comfortable chair, and that that's pretty much all that's in this place outside of the table. But it works. And it, uh, it, it preserves the risk. Because <laughs> I, I did notice, like, getting more into, like, film and needing to... I mean, like, working in film production, and getting a laptop and needing to be online constantly and working in Photoshop more and design work, eventually I was starting to feel some serious repercussions from being
0: online too long mm-hmm. so it's just easier to let go and yeah
1: and just, s- just know like eight, like eight or nine hours a day I'm not gonna like outside of my you know iPhone not touch a computer at all
0: yeah hey Ditko doesn't even have one probably so you know,
1: <laughs> you know I would imagine he probably doesn't <laughs> Who you knows, know, maybe he's like Ozzy Mani if he's all like wall screen set up. <laughs> I know uh, Alan,
0: Alan Moore refuses to get internet in his house. So Who does? Alan Moore. Oh he, oh yeah, yeah. Well, he lives in like
1: a castle, doesn't he?
0: Something weird I'm, I've heard. <laughs> I don't know.
1: A church? I don't know. <laughs> I've heard, he's one of those characters who's like infamous. He's, he's like a wizard. He doesn't need to get online, he's a wizard
0: yeah he he has a world that is uh at the end of a wand um we've uh we've covered a lot here uh reminder yeah. folks i've been talking to paul pope um his new book is battling boy out from first second books as well as uh t h b if you can find it uh a new edition of paul Pope coming out one day um mm-hmm. batman year one hundred one hundred percent Heavy liquid mm-hmm. as well as uh, I guess the soft cover just came out of uh one trick ripoff yeah so. one
1: trick ripoff uh has, has done pretty well. It charted on New York Times bestseller list, which was a total shock uh
0: nice.
1: sold out in hardcover and then went went back into soft cover. It just came out like a couple weeks ago and then with the uh with the touring battling boy art exhibits, we've so far got six shows lined up, including European shows. And they're all ages, which is cool. And uh, right now we're working on a catalog for the touring exhibit. So I had all of the artwork photographed. We're presenting it sort of like um, a shadow box format, uh, including some of the inspiration work going into it, and the sketches and things like that. So it's, on the one hand, like, the kind of, like, for the, the people really into, like, the art of cartooning and, like, what kind of tools and process is this guy doing? That's in there, but then also there's stuff for like the younger readers, who maybe never heard of Jack Kirby, never heard of Picasso, or never saw Fantasia,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like, you know that kind of thing. So there's like enough in there that hopefully it's going to be, you know, like a wide access.
0: Nice. Well, I hope I can see it at one of the stops, at some point. hmm Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, man. <laughs>